there, my dear friends. I hope you can't hear the construction in the background. I'm sure my amazing sound engineer, Chris Burns, is going to take it out anyway. But they've been doing uh, construction, and by construction, I mean just dropping heavy metals uh, on the building next to me for at least six of the four years that I've lived here. So I hope you can't hear that. But anyway, I just got back from working at my local coffee shop because I needed to get out of my apartment for a little bit. I needed to get some energy from people, not take it, just borrow some. Uh, I went to my local coffee shop, Potter's House. It is an independent bookstore slash coffee house slash they feed hungry people for free. Um, and I love it so much. You should go there and meet me for a coffee sometime. Um, unless you're a murderer, then please don't contact me about that. But um, anyway, I went to Potter's House. The amazing thing that happened is that when I got there, they were playing 80s hits. So I walk in the door. Instantly, I got Phil Collins' Arrow of the Night. And uh, then we went right into Don Henley, um, Heart of the Matter, and then some Genesis song. I can't remember what it was, but um, I, I shazammed it and it was Genesis. Anyway, it was such a vibe. It brought me right back to childhood. Like Sometimes at Potter's House, they've got like a Lauren Hill thing going on. Sometimes it's like J-Lo featuring Ja Rule. Um, it's always good. But sometimes it just hits you right when you right when you needed it. Like you get to that chorus, do you know what I'm talking about, in the um, Don Henley song. And it's like that song that's like, I've been trying to get down to the heart of the meta. Something and something. But I think it's about forgiveness. You know that part? I don't know. There's something about that chorus. I really, it's like he talks really quickly and then he says the word forgiveness kind of slowly and loudly. It's like, it is about forgiveness, Don. It is. Apologies. I can't stand when people sing at me. That was wrong of me. I really, that's the first time I've ever done that on here and I promise it'll be the last time. Uh, let's do some news and then a talk show. Nope. Okay, the big news as of today, which is Thursday, February 22nd, as I record this intro, that DoorDash, the food delivery service, will pay a $375,000 settlement for violating multiple consumer privacy laws, as Yahoo News, among others, reports. California Attorney General Rob Bonta said he investigated, and he found out that DoorDash sold its California customers' personal information to a marketing co-op without providing those customers with notice or an opt-out. Bonta said that violates not only the CCPA, but also the California Online Privacy Protection Act, which is, as we all recall, maybe a 2004 law amended in 2013. And it is the law in California that requires websites to include a privacy policy on their website. In a statement, Bonta said, I hope today's settlement serves as a wake-up call to businesses, colon. The CCPA has been in effect for over four years now, and businesses must comply with this important privacy law, end quote. In a statement, DoorDash said that it actually ended things already with the marketing co-op back in 2020. They broke up a long time ago, and that it is, quote, pleased to have resolved this year's-old matter, end quote. It said the situation involved a single incident involving a vendor four years ago, the same month that the CCPA went into effect. So like one vendor four years ago, dang, 
But it goes on to say that the terms of the settlement reflect its, quote, good faith and deep commitment to privacy, end quote. And to me, it does seem like if they got nailed for just 375000 I mean, DoorDash must have some money. And it got nailed for 375000 There probably were some other considerations involved in Bonta's decision, like they must have been making some good faith efforts. I don't know. We'll find out more about it soon, I'm sure. Um, or we won't, because some things of an investigation don't get revealed. You'll remember Sephora, the first victim of CCPA enforcement, got hit with a $1.2 million settlement for selling data. Next location data is, it's it's all the rage right now, and uh, it's also all the focus of enforcers and lawmakers alike. Um, the FTC's mad. Senator Ron Wyden is mad. Biden's even mad. Listen, companies, you have been put on notice. According to an investigation by Senator Ron Wyden, a location data provider collected and sold data on people's visits to nearly 600 Planned Parenthood locations across the U.S. and used it to fuel a massive anti-abortion ad campaign. Political reports that this is the largest publicly known location-driven anti-abortion ad campaign to date. And so Senator Wyden has asked the FTC and the SEC to investigate the data broker, which goes by the name of Near Intelligence and claims on its website to have information on 1.6 billion people across 44 countries. And that's a lot of people in a lot of countries. Uh, The company's data allows those who purchase it to target ads to people who've been to specific locations, including reproductive health clinics. Um, Its parent group is Wisconsin Right to Life. So the Wall Street Journal first broke this news uh, last year, but Wyden's investigation has now exposed the massive scope of the ad campaign. And it also found that while the company claims it collects data with users' consent, its former CPO has actually come out and said that's not true. Uh, If you read the Privacy Beat newsletter's most recent edition, you know that I was talking about this there because here's the kick in the teeth. Politico reports that while Near Intelligence stopped selling Europeans' data uh, after the Wall Street Journal broke the news, it kept going with Americans' data because, and I can't stress this enough, we don't have a federal privacy law. And sometimes I think it can be hard for us to attach real harms to privacy cases. I mean, that's true because judges literally say that. But more than a dozen states have banned abortion since the Dobbs decision in 2022. And if marketers have access to this kind of data, that is, people visiting abortion clinics, obviously law enforcement can also rather easily. So, you know, harms. Also, uh, speaking of harm, don't forget that the FTC's case against Kachava recently took a step forward when a judge ruled that the agency's claim that Kachava's sale of precise geolocation data could cause consumers substantial injury can proceed. Next, a federal judge in Ohio granted tech industry group NetChoice's request to block enforcement of a new children's privacy law while NetChoice's case against that law goes through the legal system. This law in Ohio is called the Social Media Parental Notification Act, and it would require platforms to identify users under the age of 16 and obtain parental consent before they could use the site. NetChoice, you may recall, uh, I've reported on this before, and don't you read everything I write? Why? Um, 
Anyway, NetChoice is a conglomerate of tech companies that recently won a similar injunction against California's age-appropriate design code and against Arkansas's Social Media Safety Act. In both arguments, NetChoice claimed that the laws violate First Amendment rights to free speech. Um, so not only is it clear that NetChoice has an effective argument for knocking down these state-based solutions that we've passed to protect kids online, but it's also worth noting that NetChoice opposes COSA, which is the children's bill that just recently gained enough to support to pass the U.S. Senate soon. It's supposed to pass the U.S. Senate soon. Hasn't had its official floor vote. If they pass that, NetChoice is going to file another request for injunction, and then I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But I'm just here to tell you the news. All right, on to today's podcast. Y'all, I'm really happy with how this one turned out. If you don't know Andy Dale, link up with him at Summit. I've only known him for a couple of years now, to be honest, but he's a New Englander. And if you're a New Englander, we're already pals. But, and you'll hear me say this to Andy during the show, what I really appreciate about Andy is, I mean, for one thing, his friendly approach to doing privacy. He often posts open questions on his LinkedIn that really like actually invite conversations about everything from the struggles of GC life to the Super Bowl. But what I like about them especially is that they're not pretentious. You know, I really dig when people are not pretentious because we're all learning and literally everyone can use a little more kindness from everyone else every single day. But also, I think sometimes as working professionals on social media, I'm not even saying specifically privacy people, like this isn't like a dig on the privacy industry, but I think when you're just working in an industry and trying to live your life online, we tend to feel like we need to use social to prove like we're at the top or we know the most, you know, to try and win some people over, get some eyeballs, get some listens. And I get it. We all need to self-promote sometimes. And Lord knows, I straight up beg y'all to help me do it. But I think having an attitude that you're interested in what other people think and feel is a good place to start. And I think that Andy does a good job of inviting that in. Anyway, now I'm just in my feelings. So let's just enjoy this insightful conversation with the CPO and GC at OpenAP, Andy Dale. As always, thanks for listening. You're doing great. The best you can at this time. Just keep going. Talk soon. Love you. First of all, I wanted I want to talk about your podcast, but Andy does a, pat, a podcast with his buddy, our mutual friend um, Pedro Pavon at Meta. And um, this one time, I was just talking about how I was on the podcast. They graciously invited me, and I was talking about how like I think our industry industry is so interesting because like there's so much technology moving so fast all the time, and like you know, there's just so much flying at you all the time, and I like carelessly thoughtlessly compared it to like i mean you can't go to like the dental industry and like you're you know t- the tech is constantly advancing and pedro's like i just yesterday randomly stumbled into like a dental technology conference or something like that right that's what he said uh, yeah yeah like molar it so technology funny. it was like a rooftop party in atlanta for all these uh this emerging dental tech practice so <laughs> i was like good I'm- for them yeah, I was Good like, I'm so sorry, dental hygiene uh, industry. I completely like downplayed uh, your tech stacks. Um, <laughs> so 
Cool. So yeah. So tell us, first of all, let's talk about the podcast and what that's all been like for you. But um, for folks who don't know you, which how do you not know Andy? He's everywhere, speaking everywhere, all over the socials and, and of course has his own podcast, but you are at open app now. Would you tell folks who don't know uh, what's open app do and what do you do there? I'm the general counsel and chief privacy officer. Uh, Open AP is a Open joint AP, venture. So yeah, no worries. Joint joint venture owned by Paramount, NBC Universal, Fox, and Warner Brothers Discovery. Uh, focused on uh, ad tech technology. You know, ad tech for the streaming space. All these players have um, new technology coming out streaming and serving ads into those environments are. We don't serve the ads, but we, you know, we assist those publishers in um, those uh, advertising planning and facilitation of measurement of those campaigns. So an emerging area, I think, as people adopt streaming technology, I thought to myself, this is a good place to, to dig in and, and, and work. I've been in another, I was in a digital ad tech company, uh, demand side platform called DataZoo, which got acquired by Roku. Um, and, and after that, I was in two MarTech mar- marketing tech companies focused more on uh, marketing and sales technology. And then so I missed ad tech and came back to the, to the TV side, which is a really interesting uh, business. What do you love about working in MarTech? It sounds it's all it's all such a complicated ecosystem. And I've had people explain it to me. And I think it's really interesting. But it sometimes I find it hard to talk about because you need a little bit of a primer about how all this stuff works. Yeah. But um, but what do you like about working in that space? My grandfather went to law school and hated being a lawyer. And he ended up in advertising. Um first on the creative side and then on kind of the account management side of the business. And he, when my father, this is my, my dad's father-in-law, when my father graduated and was interested in advertising, he uh, hooked my dad up with an interview at his agency. And my dad said to my grandfather, I don't want to get this job because you're my father-in-law. <laughs> My grandfather said to him, you won't get the job because you're my son-in-law. All I did was get you in the room. You know, you have to go, you have to get the job. And my dad did get the job and then was in advertising for 30 years and then had his own business for a little while in in marketing. So advertising and marketing has always been in my family. And I think uh, it's really appealing and interesting to me that I get to do it, but in a completely different way. My dad loves that. And so when I was looking, I was at a, a... TD Ameritrade and the legal team, I supported the advertising and marketing team at a time when we were just figuring out how to use data for advertising, how to use cookies to serve ads and, and target target folks. This was like mid, mid-2000s. mid and, um, and so I went into an ad tech company uh, from TD Ameritrade. And um, so I love being able to do it, but do it differently than my family did it. I love that. And then also, I love the complexity. And I think it's become a very different business. Uh, It used to be all about the creative. And now a lot of it is about just media sales Mm. and pushing pushing media through digital channels. Creative is still important for like the Super Bowl, which is coming up, but it's it's less of a focus. So there's multiple answers, I think. But, but, you know, most of it is sort of like historical and in my roots. That's amazing. I I have, I think I can 
say, and I've spoken with a lot of people that I've never asked someone, how did you get working in privacy? And they've said, well, it really goes back generations, you see. (laughs) (laughs) For me, the ad tech industry, which I don't directly interact with that often, but of course, I'm always like kind of reporting on some of the latest news and all that. And certainly like the end of cookies um, has been, you know, in the headlines for a long time now. But I feel like it's an industry that's just forever getting the squeeze. Like it's the rules are getting tighter about what you can do and can't do with data and probably will only continue to do so with all of these emerging state laws and all of this FTC concern about, you know, sensitive location, health data, um, all of that. And so it feels to me like it must be a very stressful environment because it's like just every, you know, however often it seems like it's like, well, you can't do that. You know, um, tell me a little bit about what it feels like to like, does it feel like to you that the squeeze is getting tighter all the time? And, and isn't that so stressful? It's the ultimate job security <laughs> I mean, yeah. for, 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 uh, privacy lawyers among us. And I joke with, uh, Phil Lee from Europe, who is a very experienced privacy and, and, and a privacy lawyer who does a lot of ad tech work that, Every time one of these laws changes happens, I just text him and say, you know, another five years of prosperity for you yeah. uh, in this game. And I think that's not, it's, it's glass half full way to look at it. The other way to look at it, I think is, um, you know, we don't sign up for boring. I don't sign up for something that's not changing and not dynamic. I mean, I have friends that do antitrust work, like, it's interesting, but it's not changing. Mm. Maybe it is a little, but the law isn't changing. You know, tax law is not evolving. Like you and I talked about this on our podcast. It's exciting. It's an exciting place to be. And if you are comfortable with the mess and comfortable with shifting things and being on the ground floor of fixing and building and working, and if you're comfortable with doing that in groups, I think if you, I think if you feel like you've got to do it alone, I think that's a problem. And if the ground's shifting beneath you and you don't have any help, you don't have any outside counsel you can lean on, you don't have other GCs and CPOs that you can talk to and pressure test ideas, and uh, then you will feel alone and you will feel like the ground's moving under you and you will feel like I don't have enough resources to handle this, uh, especially in small teams. Um, and so I think it comes down to... Uh, being a teammate and being part of a group that's solving a problem, uh, I feel okay about it if that's the case. If everybody's sort of going, I don't know what to do here, then that feels a little bit more manageable. And that and that is true. I do think that ad tech is getting the squeeze for a couple reasons. I think it's so visible. It's so visible to people when they uh, see retargeting happening uh, on the web when they look at a pair of shoes and it keeps showing up and it keeps following them. And there's a, how did they know that factor for most people? Um, And I think it's hard to make the argument that that ad is more relevant to somebody. They don't always, and it's also equally hard, I think, to make the argument that, well, you, you wouldn't get a bunch of free content if you didn't allow those ads to sort of power that free content, free services, like all Google does. Mm-hmm. Is try to give consumers free services. They ha- it's Meta, same thing. They have to do this. There's no Instagram without this stuff. So there's a real tension and push and pull in terms of what people want and what they expect as sort of a right to receive those services versus what data they're allowing, you know, to be to be used for advertising purposes. And that does keep changing, especially um, different sensibilities. U.S. 
Europe, globally, every country has sort of a different outlook on this. Um, so yeah, I think it's not going to settle maybe ever. Hmm. And do you think that the squeeze that, um, MarTech, like the industry is feeling right now, um, and every company really who wants to market, do you feel like the squeeze is coming from a consumer swell? Like consumers are more savvy, they're picking up on those trends, and they are maybe being more choosy about the services that they pick and choose? Or like, where is that push coming from? That's a really good question. I don't, I think it's a mix. Mm-hmm. I, I do think like, there's certainly a perception that the use of cookies went beyond the scope of what a cookie was for. Mm-hmm. You know, I think originally it was sort of like, how do I, how do I monitor the performance of my website? And how do I connect with people that have visited my website? And I think it's certainly gone beyond like what the original design of the cookie was, but cookies are pretty privacy centric technology. I think it just, the perception of it has changed over time. And, and there are companies like Apple and such that have gone out of their way to, to push on, put the thumb on the scale of privacy uh, as a business driver. And they have business reasons to do that. So it's, it's a mix of things. It's coming from some consumer sentiment, but I don't think like by and large that people are like walking around talking about the CCPA. Right. Well, that's the thing. It's hard to gauge for me because I live in this bubble and like we're so we're we talk about it all even on my text threads, as I'm sure with you, just by like the your pool of friends. Like it's we talk about this all the time, sometimes for fun and sport. Uh, But it's like and I feel like there is more of a consumer awareness. Like I feel like the you know, not that it's the same thing at all. But like when the Snowden revelations hit, like Americans became a little bit like their ears perked up a little bit about like, oh, my Mm -hmm. digital data and who has it and why. And that sort of like, I found it easier to have conversations with people outside of the industry about what I do after Snowden Mm -hmm. and um, in all the Facebook drama. But yeah, it's just kind of hard to like, I feel like there, there must be more consumer awareness, but it's hard to tell like how much and how much of that then goes to like lawmakers ears and like, then to a bill that gets introduced on the floor. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think Europe, the EU pushed this forward, certainly dramatically. We had this, we had the directive, but then the GDPR obviously raises the consciousness of folks around this and cookies were a critical issue there. And at the same time, you had the e-privacy directive as well that was supposed to become a regulation alongside the GDPR, but hasn't. And so really, ad tech and consent issues around advertising have been really construed with with the GDPR uh, weighing in, in in ways that I think weren't weren't really the intent in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I think we're sort of left with um, an environment where uh, where the GDPR requires like a lot more granularity just in general in terms of how consumers interact with the web. And those of us in the game back then knew that that was going to mean crazy amounts of cookie banners and and crazy clicking and approving and accepting and a bunch of variability in what those cookie banners looked like and and that's and fatigue you know for people that use the internet just go use the internet in 
in the EU and you'll see like it's it's a lot of that. Well, and even even here, I'm exhausted. Yeah, now it's happened here. We, we have 14 laws now. And I think that the, the fallback is like, okay, well, I'm going to put an accept all button on the website and you just mindlessly click it. And that's not really, Pedro makes this point all the time. That's not like pushing privacy forward. Mm-hmm. It just isn't. And so uh, there, there's, a real, there's a real tension between that and what I think some regulators in Europe are trying to do, um, which is control big tech in some ways too, just put some guardrails around tech. And so one of the great things that the GDPR accomplished is creating a floor for people to really start like doing things like privacy impact assessments and having paying much more uh, detailed attention to their privacy notices, thinking through what rights consumers can and should have. So I think those things are really valid and beneficial. Mm. And I think, you know, they, they query whether the GDPR, at least of this number of years in, is a, quote, success or not. I think it's a pretty good law. And I think it's, it's raised the bar for everybody um, and raised the bar for ad tech. But I think we don't yet know where the cards are going to land because in the U.S. here, we're going to get rid of third-party cookies someday. And there's going to be a new technology that replaces it. Will that be more privacy-centric than the cookie? I'm not sure. Yeah. And like I... I'm guessing there's not yet an answer to this, but it's like we sort of act like I'm going to mischaracterize probably a whole bunch of shit here because I don't work in this space and you're a genius here. But like I it seems like we we thought, okay, we'll just do the transparency thing and we'll try and just tell people we're collecting it and here's what it's for or whatever, which, as we all know, even as someone who works in privacy, like I'm just like, I'm not going to read all those terms. I get the gist of what you're saying, like accept, reject, whatever. Um, and so that hasn't really, doesn't seem like it's worked because people hate banners. They don't really read them. And so if it's not just more, and also I think it's like, it's still very hard and only, I've only seen some companies do it well to like give the notice that you want to give them to make them feel safe and protected within a tiny banner without using like just legal jargon. You know, it's like, it's a very complicated system to try and distill down into like, hey, don't worry, I'm telling you what I'm doing. So if notice isn't really the answer, like what is, like what, what is? I've always thought, and this hasn't happened yet, (laughs) I've always thought we need to do some privacy by design in this area. And there needs to be some new ways for consumers to interact with services. Internet is one, but just think about like your smart TV, your smart fridge, your smart coffee maker, whatever, whatever it is that's accessing the internet and needs to use your data to do stuff. I think we should be like reimagining the way those consent dialogues look. And I think about stupid comparison, but I think about like the first star Wars movie when he like, prize the button off of R2-D2 and it shows a message of Princess Leia saying like, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. I, you know, you're my only hope. It's a visual, virtual, virtual uh, visualization of somebody asking something and asking for something. Hmm. And I don't know that that's the way it should be, but I think like there are ways in which your TV should be able to talk to you and say, look, I'm going to collect your data I'm going to use your data that's based on, you know, the shows that you watch. I'm going to use it for advertising purposes. I won't use it for these other purposes. And you can always change it by going here. 
Mm-hmm. Is that okay with you? Um, and, and by the way, if you do it, if you agree to it, you'll get three free movies a month. Like I, I'm making this up, but like that's a dialogue to me that could make sense. In, in theory, it could help with VPPA video privacy protection act obligations mm. around viewing data, which is a big, big cla- uh, class action lawsuit topic right now. Mm. Um, so, uh, I'd like to see those those dialogues reimagined, and I'd like to see people like you, you and me, your company, my company, other privacy pros having dialogue about it. Mm-hmm. What should it look like? AI is a huge opportunity for us to think through what can you build that that um, engages with people in maybe a different way that feels different, at least to consumers. Instead of like, here's a list of 98 technologies on my website that you don't care about. Yeah, I love that. Um, I want to talk about AI a little bit because you can't have a privacy conversation these days without talking about AI. Um, I want to though to go back to one thing you said that I'm really interested in because I'm someone who really thrives with support. Like I need it. I have to build it to thrive and survive when I feel like I'm lacking it in whatever area of my life. I really, really, really struggle. I think that's true for more people than maybe even know that that's true for them. Um, I mean, we're social beings, right? And we want tribes. But like, you are someone who, and I think this is just who you are, just from knowing your personality and the way that you interact with the world. Like, you are just going to build community wherever you go because you're just, you know, you're very authentic and genuine and kind. And I think, I think like people are drawn to that and you're curious. So you're like, I want to talk about this. You know, like if you just look at your LinkedIn, you get a feel for that. But for people who maybe don't have like a, like, for example, right now in my role, I haven't yet built up a content director of content strategy community. So I do a lot of time feel very alone. Like I'm like, I don't know best practices. I don't know how to solve this problem. I don't know how to think creatively around this, you know, and it's quite isolating and I'm actually not totally sure how to solve that problem. So if someone in privacy is in a similar position, do you have any thoughts about how to kind of start that? Or does it come so naturally to you that it's not really something you've ever thought about or strategized about? No, I thought hard about it. I mean, I was in a solo role, the first lawyer into this company in a, in a, in a data zoo, in a, in a technology that was at that time the most complicated technology I'd ever worked with before in terms of data flows and complexity and data rights. And, uh, and I was like, look, I went, I went to the CFO who's my boss and I went to the CEO as well. And I was like, how do I, how do I, who should I talk to? Who should I meet? How should I do this? Can I do this? And they were like really supportive of that. And so I started with the communities that surrounded that company in particular data zoo happened to be a member of the network advertising initiative. Mm-hmm which is like a self-regulatory body as well as the data, uh, the, sorry, the digital advertising Alliance. So both those places were places where people like-minded folks were gathering and talking about issues. They weren't right. Like only privacy issues. They were, you know, tech and data issues, but obviously like privacy became a big piece of, of the puzzle there. Mm. And so I started like engaging with those communities a little bit. And then I, saw they were having a conference in New York. And I said, can I go to this? And they were like, it's a really good idea. Yeah, you should go to that. And in fact, I went to our product team and I was like, does anyone want to go with me to this? And uh, one of our lead PMs went with me to it. 
And so we went to this conference and we met all these different people, lawyers, non-lawyers, tech people, CTOs, and it just started to open the world to me that there was a whole world I didn't know about. And there was a whole group of people really focused on this industry that I could get a lot of community from. And, and so we started engaging more in those communities and we started just showing up. So the advice is show up, like mm. whether it's a knowledge net, a local IAPP group, like that's what I get. That's the advice I give to people that are youngins, <laughs> new, new, new lawyers or new privacy people that are asking, how do I get in? Because that zero to three years is really hard to get. Showing up is number one. Just show up to mm-hmm. the event, show up to the happy hour, show up to the webinar, the talk, just start talking, start showing up, having conversations, show your curiosity, just be there. So step one is like, we're in this together. We're here. So we did that. We, we showed up and then it started to just swell from there. It got easier, got to know more people, Eventually, I got a board seat at the NAI. Um, so then I joined the board of directors at the NAI. And then I really start developing community because um, then you're sitting next to Google and Rubicon and, and um, Zaxis and AppNexus and all these people. And all those lawyers have the same problems I have. So lo and behold, we were talking about Julia Schulman earlier. She was the lead commercial and privacy attorney at AppNexus. We met through these different channels. And this is one of my best friends in privacy today. And one of the people that I lean on every day, almost every day for advice. Mm. Noga Rosenthal, same, who was the GC of the NAI and is now, uh, was CPO at Epsilon, is the GC at uh, Ampersand, another TV ad tech company. I lean on her every day. Mm. So, and I think, number one, yeah, show up. (laughs) Yeah. Number one. And I think, um, I'm going to make a risky statement and I would love to hear some pushback, but I I, I think that our industry, unlike the dental industry, most likely, (laughs) um, it is a super collegiate space. Like it is, dentists probably are very friendly too, but like, I do feel like if you take the action on yourself to show up, even if you're a little nervous or whatever, that people are really interested in meeting other people, like exchanging ideas, because um, because everyone is trying to figure it out. Like even if you're like not a new lawyer, you're still like grappling with whatever's come down the pike recently. And I also think even if people don't feel like they necessarily could learn something from collaborating with you it seems to me an exceptionally welcoming space to be like, I'll grab a coffee and tell you what I know. And then I'll introduce you to three people that I know. Like, I feel like that's very much like the, a characteristic of the privacy space. It is. I think that's true. And I've observed that definitely in what the IAPP has built. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've observed that because there's a, a place for that to happen. It was definitely true in the NAI space mm-hmm. um, and the DA as well. Um, However, you know, not to make a counterpoint, but just maybe sort of like a question back mm-hmm. is, I guess I, I question whether that's not the case everywhere. Yeah. I think probably like if we, there's obviously spaces that are less welcoming um, and, and less open, but I think there's a, in tech in general, there's just a lot of people that want community. You've, we've seen this now with, uh, marketing communities there's huge 
it's huge marketing communities now um, built through often through LinkedIn, but expansive from there. Like a bunch of former CMOs have gone off and built these communities. Um, same thing in uh, in product managers. Um, Tech GC is for for GCs, and they spun one out for finance for CFOs and and uh, for head head of uh, HR like people teams. So I think there's a thirst for this, no matter what. Yeah, but. Your your point's valid. Like, there's a really when I think of like collegial networks, I do think of privacy, and I think of like Kirk Nara as an example of someone who like has been in this game for a long time, and is the type of person that embodies like being there for you <laughs> no matter what the reason, and uh, and and I think. The the fact that early folks like are like Kirk and others um, speaks to the profession. There are a bunch of others I could name that are like this. Michelle Dennity's like this. Ruby Zeffo. There's a lot of like entrenched CPOs mm-hmm. that I think provide a really good example for the industry in terms of showing up for each other. Yeah. Um, if you're new to uh, the industry or don't know me, um, that is why I have named. Kirk Nara, Uncle Kirk, like that is, <laughs> and it's caught on a little bit. That is, he yeah. is the industry uncle. He's the kind uncle that's like, you need twenty bucks or like, you know, gives you a ride to the basketball game or whatever. Um, yeah, I guess that's true. So I probably should have prefaced my theory by saying that I've only ever worked in the privacy. <laughs> well, I mean, I worked in journalism, and that's like you're you're well. I, there are definitely I'm sh- at journalism conferences or those opportunities too. I was trying to think of any conference. Or space that this wouldn't be characteristic of, and I Correct. couldn't. So I worked at ESPN right out of college for for a couple of years in in broadcasting, and and I did not feel that sense of community mm-hmm. there. All right, cool. So maybe it's not just maybe there are spaces where this is nice true. people, and people yeah. were nice. They yeah. weren't like horrible, but it, it just wasn't the same. Yeah, fair enough. Um, okay. Now I do want to talk a little bit about AI and I also have a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about. So I'm going to try and I'm going to a little bit like skate through, but I do want to get your thoughts. So one thing that I think is interesting is that, um, I mean, there's so many different uses of AI and so many different, you know, like whether you're just using it internally or whether you're using it in like, uh, customer facing product and just so many different deployments and like, use cases. And I'm wondering, I know one thing that folks have been talking about in terms of trying to mitigate risk related to AI at their companies is trying to figure out who owns it. You know, there's been this kind of early debate of like, should is privacy even the right place? Um, so I'm curious what you think about um, privacy's role in AI and like how you're figuring out or figured out, I'm sure, like who's going to own that at your company. Um, it's a really interesting topic at this point. Um, the IAPP leaned in on privacy, uh, sorry, on, um, AI governance. And I think that speaks to, uh, like the desire to kind of have coverage over that as a, as a thing that's a smart business choice by the IAPP to at least show up in the ways that they feel plenty of privacy people will be interested. And so why not provide something um, for those folks? 
I don't think they are like addressing. I think some people like conflate the idea that they did that with the IAPP saying privacy should own AI inside a company. Mm-hmm. I think it's a shared responsibility. We had, um, we had recently, we had like uh, Harvey Jang, the CPO of Cisco on our podcast. And we have another guest from a, two guests from very large companies coming up that all said the same thing. Hmm. This is a deeply cross-functional effort. It is privacy is in the room for sure, because data is king, but your technical people have to be there. Your CISO has to be there. Your IP lawyers have to be there. Like it's too big. It's too encompassing. It's awesome. It's going to be awesome. Everybody knows that we could see it's going to change the game. And I think those of us that have been in tech for a while recognize that we were using machine learning and AI already, but obviously like open AI cracked the aperture a lot further with, with generative AI and what's being developed now. So we're in a moment, definitely. Um, and, and so I think I've just approached it with like, this is a partnership between me, uh, the head of the head of technology. We're going to start there. Mm. what do we what, what would we use this for and if so how would we use it and why mm-hmm. and um and then i think the lawyer in the company lawyers uh tend to gravitate towards trust and ethics as a piece of the puzzle for what they do whether you're a privacy lawyer or not really so that's got to play a key role um so i don't have the answers f- for that i don't think anybody does yet um, but I think we're gonna, we're gonna learn fast mm-hmm. and we're gonna pick it up fast. And I think it's gonna be, I think I had maybe, maybe I threw a link, I think I had a LinkedIn post that I think it's gonna just be like, whoever learns the most mm-hmm. gets to own it. Whoever digs in and understands the technology best and shows the most effort and interest in it, you own it. So <laughs> this is amazing. Like you're, it's so funny when you're talking because you're actually, I didn't share with you the questions I'm going to ask beforehand, but you keep on saying things that literally organically lead into the thing I wanted to ask you about, Sweet. which is, which is, ex- which is exactly that cross-functional kind of collaboration piece. Um, um, well, actually there's something else I wanted to ask. So, um, when you said, you know, whoever learns the fastest and learns the most. So I was also talking to Philly recently for a mm-hmm. podcast and we were talking about AI and he was saying like, you know, it's challenging, but I'm like a total like tech geek. Like I love to play. And someone else I was uh, speaking with recently about AI was saying that like, you really have to get in there and play with some of these tools to be able to kind of know what you're talking about. I think for someone like me, and there's a reason I don't work in like directly in operationalizing privacy, I'm scared. I don't, I'm not a tech geek. I, I have some fears about feeling overwhelmed when I, when there are things I don't understand, um, which is why I'll never be a CPO. But like, are you someone who loves to geek out and play in tech or are you someone who kind of has to task yourself with like figuring it out by interacting with it? I think that's more like everybody's different. So I think, you you know, if I'm, I wouldn't say, you know, I I could never be a CPO because I don't, I'm afraid of tech. Like CPOs come in all sorts of different flavors. Same thing with CMOs and, and chief operating officers. There's different ways to do all these jobs. So like whether you're tech enabled (laughs) a CPO or whether you're just someone that understands privacy really deeply, I don't think that's the, that should necessarily drive one way or the other. Mm -hmm. I think, um, 
me personally, I don't think I'm super technical. I think I, as you noted earlier, like a curious person about people and mm-hmm. their jobs and what they do. And I think I need to know enough tech to be effective because if you don't, don't get it, you can't really make arguments when you're negotiating. I and mean, that's, that's a, a, a piece of the puzzle. Um, but so I think like Phil Lee is a great example of someone who is experimenting all the time with new technology. There's another lawyer who I love named Gary Keibel, who's a, a privacy lawyer at this firm, Davis and Gilbert. He started out as an IT person. He was an IT person at a bank and he was like in the room fixing servers, things weren't working. And he is informed by that experience. He's not tech. He's not a tech person anymore, but I think having enough of that curiosity and learning and, and dealing with it is, is helpful. But I certainly don't think it's like one size fits all. Mm-hmm. Fair. Um, the other piece I wanted to ask you was on that cross-functional thing, because one thing that I have learned from working in privacy tech now is some of the more nuanced problems that operationalizing privacy faces, like something as fundamental as being able to work cross-collaboratively. And like, you know, something that we talk about a lot is, you know, you know, privacy, I think its importance has elevated, um, you know, in part because of all the things we've talked about, the Snowden revelations and consumer demands and these new state privacy laws and the GDPR. But, um, Privacy historically sometimes has had a problem, like being visible in the building, you know, when we used to work in buildings and like having people who understand what the privacy function is and when they need to maybe like issue spot or raise their hand that there could be a red flag here, et cetera. Um, And I think like the emergence of technology, like one thing it's done is to kind of help facilitate some of those relationships, like especially if you can collaborate within a tool. Um, But I'm curious, like, do you feel like something that you've really mastered through experience is bridging those teams and being able to really get the right people in the room speaking the same language and kind of like tagging each other in and out of problems? It's really hard. Yeah. Companies vary so greatly and they vary in size and i've been at really large companies and smaller ones it's really hard in smaller companies you know you could view it as easier because you can tap a neighbor on the shoulder and go talk to them and um and go have coffee and explain something or i you know in one company i showed up at the engineering team's um year beginning planning meeting and just talked about privacy and talked about like, the more you know about this, the better it is for your career. Mm-hmm. Like privacy is not, on, it's only going one way mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So, so there's no, there's no less privacy happening. So the more you know about this, the, the more marketable you are to this company and your next job too. Mm. So I try to do stuff like that. I try to make it fun. I'll have like a privacy champion Slack channel, put things in there. I've created stickers, you know, for like laptop stickers for like, for stuff, just little things to know about it. I try to talk about it as much as I can in the company and talk about that we care about it and mention it. And if it becomes something everyone's kind of rowing the boat in the same direction on, but it's really hard. And it's really hard, especially hard at scale. Like when when you're really, really large company and you've got tens of hundreds of product lines and you know technology that lives in different environments and has different 
infrastructure and all sorts of different teams and different countries. Like it's really hard um, to manage this. And so I guess it's gotten easier. I think the communication aspect has gotten easier. It's mm-hmm. probably a good question for Pedro, who's worked in multiple really large global companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that he's expressed to me that it's difficult. Mm-hmm. And and um, and they work really hard at it at Meta and at Oracle where he was and mm-hmm. at Salesforce where he was. They worked really hard at it. Mm-hmm. And um, my hope is that we can continue the trajectory that we've been on. I think we will. And I think hopefully AI can help that mm-hmm. um, by d- like democratizing some of these issues and making them more accessible to people and having avenues for which people can ask more questions um, and have those questions be more globally accurate. Mm. Um, this is uh not apropos, but I did want to make sure to mention that one thing I respect and admire about your LinkedIn game is your ability to thread in Taylor Swift lyrics. <laughs> I have so much respect. <laughs> um, and it's silly, but it actually, it is effective because it's like, I don't know, there's something, anytime you see Taylor Swift's name, first of all, you're like, what? Um, and also you'll like use a lyric to be like, yeah, this applies to privacy too. You know, I've only done that. I've only done that once or twice. Really? Yeah. I think, um, I, it's, it's like top of mind for me right now, like everybody, but also like my kids are super into Taylor Swift. Yeah. So like every drive to school, I'm like listening to Taylor Swift. <laughs> so, you know, there's so many, uh, worse things kids could be into. It's a great thing for them. And, uh, and I just think. She's so culturally iconic, yeah. That and so like real, yeah. That uh, that we could use more Taylor Swift in our lives. And all these people that are like bitching about the the cutaways to Taylor Swift during the Super Bowl, they're like they're they're wrong. Yeah, like they're wrong. Like let's get upset when there's something that's a real. problem and people are being harmed. Like if we're just bringing people joy, like let's not worry about it. <laughs> More people want to watch football. Who cares? Right. Great. Like women who didn't think they cared about it and then come to it and are like, oh, actually, this game's fascinating, you know? Without, without Taylor Swift uh, being, you know, in a suite at a football game, we wouldn't see Jason Kelsey ripping his shirt off and going into the crowd in Buffalo, which is some of the best content you'll ever see. <laughs> ever. And it's because the guy loves his brother and is excited and is having fun and is he plays on another team right? and the fans love him. So like <laughs> there's something to that. There's something to like embracing the stuff that is of the moment. If you can tie it to privacy, great. If you can tie it to doing your job, great. Like LinkedIn has become, you know, I think uh, some people complain about this has become more of a social place mm-hmm. as opposed to a purely workplace. Mm-hmm. LinkedIn for me is just fun. Like have fun with it. Yeah. What's the point? Like, I don't write long posts. I know people like to write long things. That's great. Long form is great too. I don't have the attention span for that. So Same. my LinkedIn game, as you said, is like observation, something I think is interesting, funny, dumb, silly. And like, if people want to chat about it for a couple of minutes, great. Nobody's 
you know, complaining. Yeah. And I guess that's what I mean. Like beyond the, I, I did happen to see the post recently and I, maybe there was just one. I thought I remembered at least, at least one other because I remember I'm liking sure there's I remember liking one. it, but I think that what I mean more broadly is just, yeah, that the way that you interact on, on LinkedIn is very like friendly, colloquial, like, you know, it's very accessible and it kind of like brings a little levity to things that are, but then also like presents some sort of idea that I'm often like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that was a problem that like GCs or CPOs like deal with. Like, that's interesting. You know what I mean? So it's my way of saying, I think you're doing a good job. I like following you. you. Yeah. It's, it's really fun. I like, I like, um, I like your content too. There's a lot of like people in the legal space that are going on to LinkedIn and, and kind of doing different things. Some I like, some I don't like, but that's the point of it. Right. Well, and I think like we all left, you know, I'm still on Twitter, but like, you know, there was this sort of exodus and people were like, all right, F this. And they used to use Twitter for that. And now it's kind of like, for me, LinkedIn is like, when I think about metrics that I'm going to present to the, cause I also do our social just by default because we're, you know, startups. But like when I show the metrics, I don't even include Twitter anymore because like, I mean, I lost a bunch of followers just from people exiting. So like those metrics matter less to me. And like, I feel like right now until there's like an alternative, not that not that this is any slight against LinkedIn, but like LinkedIn is kind of like what we've got. It's so telling. Like, so what is the threads uptake like? The threat for, on Twitter? Like, yeah, like, no, no, um, threads like I, Instagram's. Uh, so I don't, do so think? I have to be honest with you about that. I got off Instagram during COVID because I was really having a hard time scrolling through like people who got to, um, got to kind of, um, isolate with families would be posting yeah. all through the cold of winter. Like we play board games. And I was like in my apartment alone <laughs> and I couldn't do it. I couldn't look at Instagram anymore. It was like harming my health just during coat for that reason. Yeah. And then I, um, at the same time, my friends, um, all have like, you know, I'm kind of going through that. Pe- anyway, this is super revealing, but, but anyway, I, got off Instagram and I still get, I'm still on it because like, I haven't like canceled my account or whatever, but I haven't even speaking about needing to engage with the tech to know it. Like I really haven't engaged with threads and I don't yeah. use it for terror true. Cause to me, it was always way more of like a personal share place, but there are a lot of brands on there. So it's something I think about, like, do we need to be there? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's not been comer. Yeah. Um, it's it's iterating and evolving. Like when it first came out, I I I, I don't like it. I didn't like it as much as I do now. Yeah, like I find myself going there more. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I need to look yeah. into it. I kind of thought that Twitter's. I mean, and then things happened with Twitter. But like the spaces, I like the idea of Twitter Spaces. Like yeah. as a as a like community builder. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried it out for a little while at my last company and to mix success. Like I really needed, if you're a new and emerging brand, like you really need to get on a high profile guest for people to like have visibility. It's happening and try and come. So anyway, I thought that was a cool, cause it's almost like a podcast really, you know? And I was like, oh, but it's a kind of like a improv podcast, like live Twitter podcast. Is, Twitter, Twitter is a sad story. I know. Me. I'm sad. I miss, it's I miss. It's a really sad story. Yeah. And I think being in tech for a while, I was fortunate enough to know a bunch of people that worked there. And Twitter was a incredible uh, environment filled with incredibly kind people that wanted to do really well and wanted to do right, you know, by their position in tech and, and in the world. And, and um, it just, it, it, they, it got gutted. 
I have to say, I really didn't know how much people there felt such a sense of like camaraderie and purpose. Incredible. Like when everyone exited and were doing their kind of like sign offs with the little sign off emoji and saying how much it meant to them to work there. Like I felt like I was reading those all the time when they were because they came out in like, you know, rapid succession, really. And I was like, man, these people are really sad and they really loved what they did. Like I had no idea that it was like that inside the culture. You know, I just engage with the interface. But um, yeah, it was really sad. I had the incredible fortune to go to that office in San Francisco a couple of times and spend time with people and eat lunch with them and be like sort of live there. That's one of a kind community. Mm. One of a kind. Yeah. Yeah. RIP, rest in power, Twitter community. (laughs) Um, Okay. I'm nearing the end of my time. Do you have a hard stop? I'm okay. Okay. I want to ask you three more questions Two are kind of fun. One, I feel like I just really want to hear your focus on it. It's a little more serious. So the FTC right now, as we mentioned, um, and with this recent Kachava, um, you know, the FTC refiled its Kachava uh, lawsuit, and the court has said that, you know, that the FTC's suit can keep going. It um, said no to dismissing Kachava's motion to dismiss the lawsuit. And the whole thing involves around, um, you know, the collection and sale of location data. Um, and in other cases, uh, with the FTC recently, we've definitely seen, um, as the FTC said it was going to do, stronger enforcement where sensitive um, location data specifically and other sensitive data is collected and sold, partly, I think, in a response to the Dobbs decision and, you know, some concerns about protecting um, women's, um, health data, et cetera. But I wonder, um, you know, because this, the concern is this data being used to sell for advertising. Um, do do you think that the industry is watching this very closely and is feeling some nerves about location sensitive data, or is it just kind of like forge ahead, forge ahead? Like what's the vibe around using that kind of data right now? They should be feeling it. Yeah. I would, I mean, I don't, I've never seen the utility in it, to be honest, in location. Mm-hmm. Like I get the, I get the sort of like off the shelf use case of like targeting someone while they're near something, but like, does that really move someone to convert or buy something? Like, I don't, I don't think so. And all the nefarious reasons that the FTC has pointed out, it's used for in the Dobbs decision and targeting someone while they're close to like a clinic. It like, it just, it should not pass the smell test. Like I don't, so I think if you're, there's legit ways to use it. I get it. Do that. Do it within the confines of the self-reg guidelines that the NAI and DAA have created. Great. Like do it if you want. But I think like you're crazy if you're not looking at it going like, is this, should this be a part of our tactic right now? Like that plus um, really paying attention to sensitive data. These are, these are financial data, health data. These things are, you know, only going to put more uh, detail around how you can and can't use those things. The more states that have uh, requirements around these things, we're going to have to sharpen the strategy on these things. So I think, great things for people to be focused on and things for people to really stop and think like, do I need this? Mm. Do I need to be doing this? Or should I, our other tactics just as perform just as well. Yeah. 
And also speaking of cross-functional collaboration, like going to your people and being like, are we using this? Like, yo, what are we pulling in? Right. And also like to your point about metrics, talk to your, talking to your marketing team about like, does it move the needle? Right. Like you don't have, like if so many teams don't really have metrics on whether that moves the needle and Mm. then in sales, we'll say the same thing. And so they're just good topics to be discussing. Like, well, what does move the needle? Mm -hmm. Um, and which which tactics should we be focused on? I think like that conversation and dialogue between privacy and marketing is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Okay. At this stage in your career, what do you wish younger Andy knew? This is such a like game show or like uh, talk show <laughs> question. Like everyone asks this, but I think it'd be interesting to hear your insights because you're so thoughtful. Um, what do you wish younger Andy knew about growing a career in this space? Ooh, I want you to answer this too. I want to hear okay. your answer. Okay. Um. What do I wish? It's hard to answer because I'm the CPO and the GC. And I've done that three times now, which Mm. is great. It's awesome. But it's also like, how do I answer that question? Mm. You know, like if I, if I was thinking purely about being a GC, the answer is different than purely about being like a significantly focused privacy person. Mm. I've been lucky to be able to do both right now. But I feel like at some point I'm going to have to tap out <laughs> of, of these because people that live privacy all day, every day, you know, that's, I don't have that luxury. Mm. And I say luxury, like I don't have that responsibility. Um, I can do a lot of it. So when I look back and think about it, I think, you know, probably like, I would go back and say, um, you know, maybe spend my time in law school a little bit differently. If I knew, I would focus on areas that I just didn't know would be relevant and important and became really important in kind of both those areas. Privacy wasn't like a thing when I was in law school. Right. So I couldn't necessarily have like gone and done privacy. But I could have spent more time on data. I could have spent more time on technology. I could have spent more time on technology transactions. When I worked in a law firm, I could have picked a, a different firm that had more tech tech clients instead of I was a more corporate lawyer. Like I could see to look back. I did, you know, and then on the GC side, I took zero tax. Like I could really use some tax uh, experience. I could really use more corporate governance experience and kind of the work I do as general counsel and transactions and financings and M&A. Mm. So the answer is relatively academic, I'd say, but those are things that I look back and go, you know, that, that might've been nice to have some more of those experiences. And, and, and it, it comes down to people. I wish I'd spent more time with those people because then I would learn the most from them. It's not like, did I take a class? It would mm. be like, did I surround myself with folks that were doing more tech? I think that would have helped. Mm. But what, what's, what's your answer? Um, I think two things. One, I wish I had learned more about the everyday affairs of a privacy person or even a GC a little sooner. Um, because I need, I feel like I have a better understanding of what privacy, the privacy role is about now. And, um, I think my interviews, my early work would have been better if I'd had a better understanding of that. Like I often said, actually back at the IPP, like, I wish I could just do like, take your daughter to work day, but like take me to work day and I could just follow people around. 
um, and figure out what they do. Um, but like working in tech has helped me understand because working in tech has required me to learn the pain points because like we sell tech. So like, what are you struggling with? Like, how can we help you solve that problem? Um, but the other thing is more sort of like of a mindset thing where like I was really intimidated coming in because I'm not a lawyer and I was interacting with lawyers all the time. And I kind of had this attitude of like, like that I didn't belong there. And I was just like, so humble about it. like I was just like almost like so deferential to like being like I'm a mere scribe you know I'm just a writer and like I wish I if I could go back I would tell myself like you can have a space here too like you can belong here too you have a skill set that some lawyers don't have and like you can bring that to the table if you want and just like go stop apologizing and just go fucking do it you know what I, I mean I love that I love that and and, at the, and it's interesting the IPP uh, the CEO Trevor is a former GC, former lawyer. Mm. Um, I guess he's still a lawyer. <laughs> he's yeah. definitely more CEOing th- than yeah. he is. And I think he would have echoed what you just said. <laughs> like if you, if you said that to him, but like you're young I and you're doing so your career and you're going through things. And, um, but it's interesting. I think, you know, Omer Tene, who was at, uh, w- with you there at IPP would have said the same thing too. I think so too, but you can't, I had a hard time accepting like compliments and praise and even belief in me. You know what I mean? Like you have to like, I needed to grow some confidence and like realize that, you know what I mean? Like, but I think that like the fact that they trusted me to be in some ways, like the face of certainly the face of content for a while was like, they could see something there, you know, but I had to kind of grow into that. So, you know, yeah, it's nice to like know it as you move forward in life. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, I have overstayed my welcome with you significantly, but I could talk to you all day long about this, all of this. Um, If you haven't heard Andy's podcast, The Data Protection Breakfast Club, uh, go check it out. It's amazing. It's really fun and will help you grow your sense of community. And um, Andy, I hope you'll come back and talk with me again. Thanks for being you and like the role that you play in the broader privacy community and i'm so glad that we got to set aside some time to talk today thanks for doing it you're you're a good friend i appreciate it and i love i love your podcast i love what you're doing and i love um that there's content like this out there uh, so everybody should listen thank you yeah. okay i'll see you at the ipp soon all right all right good great to talk to you, you too thanks andy let's let's set up our our one-on-one soon i'll do that i'll get it on the calendar uh, All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Bye.